0: I am not one to think that because there's so many different uh, muni issuers, you know, that this can't be done. It just has to be done in a well thought out way.
1: Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, Muni Pro Odyssey Advisors and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe and I'm joined as always by my intrepid co-host, author of the Substack Long Story Short, which has featured all kinds of interesting stuff lately. Everything from big questions about pensions to big questions about how to talk about pensions and other finance issues, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks.
2: Great to be back. I was in uh, Denver last week, speaking of talking about public finance. Um, I was on a panel at the National Tax Association uh, with a number of esteemed uh, other people, (laughs) esteemed colleagues and researchers. And we talked about how um, how we look at translating public finance research for a general audience. And hopefully it was well received. I think so. It just really made me appreciate the people in my career who have been so patient uh, with me and have taught me so much. you're one of them, Justin. I don't know. <laughs> not to uh, not to embarrass you here on the air, but uh, definitely one of my uh, one of my educators early on. And so I feel like it's always it's always the people who are who are good at translating to to reporters who really are the ones that hold
1: us up. Absolutely, and we need good reporters who are willing to jump into that learning curve because this is not, <laughs> not easy stuff. But it is important that it's reported on, you know, correctly. As always, happy to take credit for all of your success and deflect anything <laughs> that uh, may have not gone well <laughs> at any point. In the
2: well done. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, speaking of talking about complicated finance concepts, or so our, our focus today is on sustainability in the muni finance space. We talked on many occasions on this podcast about the emerging sustainability space, green bonds, social bonds, sustainability bonds, investing in climate adaptation, all of these different, whatever you want to call them, lines of business or or emerging lines of work that are now squarely within the world of municipal finance. There's big debates in this space. Uh, how should it be done? Should it be done at all? Should there be regulation? Should it be a bottom-up, organic, market-driven, investor-driven world? Lots of big questions that we're just really systematically trying to, to get our arms around. Fortunately, there are a few entities out there in Muniland who have really decided that this is going to be a core part of what they do, and they've become known as entities that have put sustainability at the the center of their identity. One of them is the Battery Park City Authority in New York City, and we are very fortunate to have with us today, Pamela Frederick, who is the CFO of the Battery Park City Authority, who's going to talk all about how it is that they have made the determination of the different types of sustainability infrastructure investments they need to make, how they go about financing those investments and what it means to really have an organization that is focused top to bottom, including and especially the finance function on sustainability as a policy goal. Really looking forward to that conversation. Liz, we've both been um, in this space for a while now. When you think about kind of big emerging and well-established debates around what does it mean for a public sector entity, including and especially a big muni bond issuer to be focused on sustainability, what are some of the challenges and opportunities that come to mind?
2: So one of the topics in this area that I've devoted, I don't even know how many articles to at this point, but is just on the, I guess, if you're a glass is half empty kind of person, the lack of regulation and standardization of uh, sustainability or green bonds in the in the muni market. And uh, and if you're a glass half full kind of person, it is the uh, increasing number of of municipalities and governments that are looking at this as an as a um, attractive way to market themselves to environmentally conscious investors investors, I guess all that to say is there's it's so much of it is undefined. And there's a lot of talk around, you know, when do we get to that point of creating some structure around a green bond, much like, you know, we all know what a revenue bond is, we all know what a general obligation bond is, a green bond. There, there's no such thing in 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 that respect, and it's it's all about how you you know define it within the actual issuance. There's varying levels of of issuers who, like we're going to hear from Pamela, who are very structured in in how they um, see themselves as being accountable to investors on the what are the the fruits of the the green bond investment, what's the progress, you know what how exactly is this um, mitigating whatever it is you wanted to mitigate? Um, a lot of accountability, and then. It runs all the way down to the other end of issuing money for something that is that governments just call it a green bond because of the kind of investment it is, and that's about all there is to it. And and not to poo poo that or, 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 but it's um it's just very indicative of the. The, the wide variety that's out there. And so um, a lot of people have said, you know, is it up to the municipal issuers to figure this out? Is it up to investors? Is it up to regulators? Should the SEC get involved? No one's really answered any of those questions definitively, but that's um, those are kind of um, a, a sampling of, of a lot of the conversations out there about this. And I guess, Justin, from a research perspective, is there any kind of point of view that the research community has on this?
1: Yeah, we're focused on a, on a couple questions. One, as you had kind of alluded to, is whether there is in fact a, a greenium, so to speak, whether there's any advantage at this point to, to selling green bonds or at least marketing bonds as green bonds. And there's some evidence to that effect and, and some evidence saying that it really doesn't matter at this point. And at the same time, I think when you look at all of the trends about where this industry is going and where investment generally is going, it's fair to say that it's kind of this undeniable shift in broad attitudes toward what does it mean as an investor to have your dollars in investments that that you can live with. And increasingly that means investing and sustainable investing have become kind of one in the same for for a large segment of the of the investor community, especially uh, you know, younger folks, especially investors who have kind of come into their own within the past few years. And that's only going to continue, but the question is at what point does that translate into a benefit to, to muni issuers right now? The evidence is a little mixed, but there have been some interesting papers as of late that have looked at that. I think in Another one that's been especially interesting to watch has been the real strong backlash against anything that looks like greenwashing in in the muni market. And I mean, you had, I mean, to, to give a specific example of something you had alluded to before, the you know, there have been a couple instances where you've had facilities that were built maybe ten years ago to some sort of lead silver, maybe lead gold standard, financed through traditional revenue bonds. For instance, fast forward five years, there's a refinancing. The refinancing happens and is labeled green. There's no new investment. There's no additionality, as we say. It's just slapping a label on a refinancing. And the market has really pushed back on that. And there have been some, you know, some real concerns raised about that. But again, in the absence of any standard defined in regulation or defined in the market or wherever it might be, there's nobody that says you can't do that. It's just a question of how's the market going to respond. And so it's a really important questions that need to be worked out. We're in the process of working them out. That's why it's so important to hear from people like Pamela who are actually doing this work day in and day out and hearing how it's been going for her. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Pamela Frederick, who is the Chief Finance Officer of the Battery Park City Authority in the great city of New York. Pamela, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the Public Money Pod. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
2: We're really glad to have you here. And um, I I was hoping you can for our listeners who may not be uh, familiar with New York City, maybe not Battery Park City. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of what that is and, and how it became what it is today?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Battery Park City is a waterfront community, and it's located in New York City in Lower Manhattan. It's along the southwestern tip of Manhattan, along the Hudson River, and that's on one side. On the other side, it's directly across from uh, the World Trade Center, which many people are very familiar with, of course. Um, It's a relatively uh, new part of Battery or I should say of New York City having only been um, in existence for about 50 years, uh, which we celebrated in 2018. And it has a very storied and interesting history, but I'll abbreviate it by saying it was initiated by the then governor of uh, New York State, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, and that was in 1968. And then after much political wrangling with um, the then mayor of uh, New York City, it was founded in 1968. That's a 50 year history, which is in the grand scheme of things, a fairly brief period of time. Is creation really sought to remove and remediate um, a dilapidated uh, shipping piers in lower Manhattan and create urban renewal in that area, uh, which we think it's done a, a really great job of doing that. It's created a, a vibrant multi-use neighborhood And to accomplish this, we have a 92-acre site that was developed largely on landfill, a third of which came from the original excavation of the World Trade Center site. And so any who have visited, or hopefully many will visit, it is now a very vibrant residential and commercial neighborhood.
1: You mentioned this a little bit, Pamela, but tell us a little bit more about the Governance structure of the authority itself. You know, anytime you get into these public authorities in New York, it gets very complicated, lots of different players involved. And especially when it comes to financing decisions, I can imagine that creates a, an interesting set of stakeholders that you have to balance.
0: After the creation in 1968, through the collaboration of New York State and uh, New York City, that collaboration partnership continues. It was uh, the original founding chairman uh, was Charles Erdstadt, and he implemented Governor Nelson's uh, vision, and that encompassed a mixed-use community focused on uh, middle-income housing. And I think since then, the housing market has changed quite a bit, and I would say we are probably one of the premier residential areas in New York City, uh, but it also originally wanted to focus on commercial buildings and offering significant green space. Uh, we continue to have 36 acres of green space, which if you can imagine in New York City, it's makes for a very beautiful community and great for families. Since the founding it was pretty focused on environmental impact, and we issued our first green guidelines in uh, the year 2000, and that resulted in being one of the first sites for LEED-certified buildings, but together with our building guidelines, these requirements together has uh, made for and assured that Battery Park City is a a model waterfront community. As a New York State authority, it is ultimately led by uh, the governor, uh, which is now Governor Kathy Hochul, who along with the legislature appoints a seven-member board. And that board is uh, currently chaired by Don Capoccia He was just voted in at our uh, last meeting. So we're v- very, very lucky to have, uh, to have Don at the helm. As a, fun- a function of our founding structure, we are also partnered with New York City by virtue of a settlement agreement. And that settlement agreement determines an agreed flow of funds along with state oversight and New York City oversight, as you mentioned, that sometimes could get complex. But I think uh, for the most part, my experience has been it's just been very cooperative. We have very aligned and shared goals, particularly uh, what we're doing on the resiliency front, which is important because New York City um, approves our capital plan, New York State. Provides us the uh, authorization for bond issuances, so both of them are very important in terms of our ability to execute on our our uh, various strategies.
2: Getting to the environmental, you said obviously that's always been a part of a part of the city's history, Battery Park City's history. Um, I think a lot of people, when we think of Lower Manhattan, some of the things images that come to mind are what happened in the aftermath of, of Superstorm Sandy, the flooding. What sorts of Challenges with that does Battery Park City face given its given its location? How how often? I mean, how do you how do you all look at um, mitigating that and approaching it financing financing issues around that?
0: As a waterfront community, our immediate threats are driven by climate change, principally as it relates to sea level rise, but also storm surge and in addition other events faced by many communities and some of which we've seen most recently have been things like cloudbursts, where you just get a dump of water, tornadoes, very rare uh, in our area, but not unseen or in the recent years, I should say, and other storm events. So I think environmental impact is very much and climate change are very much at the forefront of what we're trying to mitigate against. Uh, These have brought extreme levels of uh, rainfall, which often are unable to uh, drain very quickly. Uh, which also leads to uh, a lot of flooding. And in particular, in Manhattan, within the last two weeks, we had an event where you probably saw on the national news, subways being flooded. And so it, we have pretty significant below ground infrastructure that's not run by Battery Park, but it does impact us and impact the, not only the residents, but our visitors, as well as the pretty significant workforce that we have here. So we have to work in concert with the city, uh, not only on our own infrastructure, but to ensure that it is uh, works in cooperation and in consideration of the work that New York City, um, as well as the state is doing. And so we will be doing not only some of the uh, resiliency work, but that resiliency work will also include uh, storm water drainage. And so that will be a a pretty significant element as well. We will also do things like uh, addressing permeable surfaces. And so while the dollar amount for that maybe is smaller relative to some of the larger capital projects, I think altogether are important because every aspect should um, help to mitigate a lot of those risks. Um, some of our other design challenges are due to the fact that we are an existing community. One, um, we've talked about the landfill aspects and we we have uh, a number of piers that shore up the property, but we also have, and what people may not think about, there's a lot of sub water and subterranean other infrastructure, like a lot of transportation, um, including the subways uh, flow through, as well as there is the, from New Jersey, you have the path transportation network that flows over to uh, the World Trade Center site. And then there's other energy related infrastructure and many other things that have to be taken into consideration. But uh, the reason I bring all of those up is that they make the design work much more complex and they add to the cost. And so I think it's those things that people don't see that are important to understand sometimes what impacts the cost of implementing projects such as uh, those that we're doing. I think the other thing that uh, until you get into some of these infrastructure projects uh, you don't consider is you know, while we are protecting a community, that community has to live there. (laughs) And so we always are, we're very much focused on community input. We've had many, many meeting community meetings to provide them insights into what is some of the design um, work that's taking place and to also seek their input about what some of their concerns are. And so that we've often used a lot of that input and feedback to help guide in our designs. There's a lot of significant and coordination that has to be done and that existing infrastructure adds to the complexity of some of the uh, resiliency work that we're doing.
2: In those community input uh, sessions, do you ever find that you have to manage expectations uh, in terms of the cost and, and capability, I guess, capacity of, of the city to be able to address all of the concerns and is there, are there timeline issues? I mean, how do you all kind of navigate, navigate that? Oh, absolutely. I think,
0: you know, we just had a series of what we would call walks and talks where we actually had the designers, construction engineers, along with our internal team who's focused on the construction design and construction work walk the community along the actual perimeter of what the work that we intend to do. And so that input helps to set expectations, but it also helps us to understand their concerns and we're far enough along in our design plans, able to address them on site, we're able to do that. And so it's really just quite an exchange. We've, we have done at least 40 community meetings over the course of this uh, entire process. And you have to remember, we started this not long after uh, Superstorm Sandy. And so it's been quite a number of years. Um, It's surprising when you think about it, it feels like it wasn't that long ago, but it really was, but having had the uh, effects of the storm, we began immediately planning for it. And part of that planning always includes community involvement and community input. I do want to say in terms of costs, we're going to build to the goals of the project. And it's really important that um, I described where we're located. We generally have one entire side of our prop uh, 92 acre site is along the Hudson River. And so as it relates to primarily, I would say sea level rise, but also storm surge in some of the low lying areas the project will if you don't build to the necessary design work the project will not work an important aspect of that is there's a lower manhattan coastal resiliency group that brings all of the stakeholders in government together to ensure that our projects are aligned um, that we are using similar assumptions say for a sea level rise. And I think those are principally come from, I'm not the engineer, but those are principally come from the Army Corps. It's one Hudson, so we should have one set of quantitative numbers. The lower uh, Manhattan Coastal Resiliency does a good job of ensuring all of the stakeholders are working in concert and sharing information, ensuring that the projects that connect align properly. And uh, I'm pretty excited
1: about that too, because that level of cooperation is you know, difficult. You know, a lot of these infrastructure investments that you're describing sound like textbook green bonds. Do you market them as such? Do you consider yourself a, a green or sustainability bond issuer? Or, uh, or is it just given the nature of the services you deliver? These are just infrastructure investments that don't necessarily need to carry some special label.
0: Our labels have been as sustainability bonds. And while we also fit the requirements for green bonds, sustainability was really to be labeled as sustainability was important to us because that is more comprehensive in terms of our approach so we issued our first 100 million dollar sustainability bond in 2019 and issued an additional nearly uh, 400 million this year in 2023 we chose sustainability because it is consistent with our overall strategic plans and our philosophical approach of how we operate battery park city in 2020 we issued a sustainability plan and um, we also issued a sustainability implementation plan along with providing updated green guidelines these green guidelines are focused on existing buildings whereas our original green guidelines issued in 2000 were focused on new construction and new development and i think you know we're also through those that combination of planning and strategy, we are targeting being carbon neutral by 2050. So our plans are really focused on four key areas, energy, water, material and waste, as well as the site itself. And uh, while the majority of the capital funds that we've raised, I mentioned the 500 million, will go towards the implementation of our resiliency projects, we're also focused on our parks, on energy use, public art and other infrastructure upgrades that are more social focused. And so that's why we chose uh, to stick with the sustainability bonds.
2: Marketing them as social bonds or the sustainability bonds rather beyond just a, as a green bond. I mean, what was the investor response different from what you would have expected if it had been a green bond? I mean, is there a way, way for you to kind of gauge how the market received that?
0: I think the market is evolving. When I you know, did the first bond in 2019, issuing it as sustainability, that really was more of a strategy. We would have no problem whatsoever in selling our bonds, even if we were not labeled. But we thought it was important given the substantial amount of those bonds that were going towards environmental and social improvements, that it was important to uh, have us recognized in that community. And uh, that's really the primary reason. The second one is, I was hopeful that For subsequent issuances, we would always be considered and fall in the bucket for those firms that are uh, focused and targeting uh, green or sustainable, environmental, social. And while in 2019, and albeit potentially even still in 2023, there still has not been a clear connection between the labeling and the pricing of bonds.
1: You mentioned the development of the market for green bonds in particular, green sustainability, social bonds, uh, ESG, broadly speaking. One of the, the debates it seems like is happening in that part of the market is what, if anything, can we do from a regulatory perspective to try to help the market develop in a way that would be helpful to issuers like yourself? And it seems like there's basically two views of that. One is, no, let's continue with the bottom up uh, kind of organic growth in the market and have it be kind of that demand side perspective that, that you mentioned a second ago. But then there's others who say, no, having some standardized definitions, having states or the federal government or somebody say, here's what we mean when you label something green, here's what those standards ought to be. You had alluded a second ago to Hudson River communities maybe ought to have one set of standards around what you know what what we're gonna build to how we're thinking about climate change going forward. So there's definitely a role for that kind of top down perspective as well. You know, in your view, would there be any value to having more of that sort of top down view of things, or are you confident that the market can continue to to grow the way that it's growing, in a way that'll that'll serve your needs and the needs of anyone else who's interested accessing, you know, new new investors through this thing called ESG, green, sustainable, whatever kinds of investments we call these.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that it's kind of two questions. One is encouraging investments in the space, and the other is how to finance them through the encouragement of green labeling. Both are related to the financial ability of entities to support infrastructure spending. And so once that financing source is identified, our next question is then how do we best issue and whether labeling assists in issuing. But I really, I think it's the latter that we have to focus on. And I think it will be both investor driven and market driven, because the investor is going to determine the demand. If there's no demand, then There's no need to regulate the investor is going to determine would they be willing given demand to pay more Um, the investor will also decide in order to pay more what do i need to know to be comfortable that i'm receiving what i thought i was investing in and i think it's that latter point when regulation um, has historically come in because the regulation should be to protect investors to ensure that they're getting the product or the security that they thought they were buying. Given those things, it will take both the investors saying, these are the, this is the kind of information that I need. You know, they are uh, selling, they're then selling the product to others. And so they wanna be comfortable that what they're providing to either their investors or whomever, that they uh, actually have that product. They're not mislabeling it themselves by virtue of the fact that they didn't get what they thought they paid for, and so it's really those investor protections that ultimately uh, will drive it. And then on the the you know the flip side of that is regulating regulation and regulators are focused on how to protect investors, and in, in the case of some, how to protect issuers. But in this case, I think it's an investor protection, ultimately. I am not one to think that because there's so many different uh, muni issuers, you know, that this can't be done. It just has to be done in a well thought out way that is specific enough to give investors comfort, but not overly specific to be taxing for, for issuers. So I think it will take more study and maybe from the University of Chicago will be one of the contributors to that.
2: Um we've covered so many different topics. So how did you how did you find your way into this this role and and for any of our our grad school audience listening out there how what advice would you give young professionals who want to work in this space?
0: In terms of background I spent I had kind of noted earlier over 25 years in the private sector, uh, largely in a range of uh, finance and banking roles. And at the time I always... Questioned: Do I go narrow and deep, or do I go wide? And ultimately, when you look at my background, it's pretty wide and deep in certain pockets. So, for instance, I spent a lot of times in uh, a lot of time in corporate finance, project finance, capital markets, and a bit in M A as well. And many of these skills um, were very useful in this role. The role of CFO is fairly broad. You know, I work on financings, bond issuances. The vast majority of my team is doing operational work, day-to-day processing of, and approvals of payments, of cash flows. And so there's a significant finance and banking portion of that, uh, dealing with accounts payables, accounts receivables. We've gotta get the money in and then we use that to get the money out. And so that is a big uh, component, but guess what? When you bring bonds in, you end up with a fairly sizable bond investment portfolio. And so you're dealing with not only the day-to-day running of a corporate finance operation, you're also, have an investments operation. And then lastly, you have financing. And there are many, many aspects to project finance and one of the cores is allocation of risk. And you can't allocate risk unless you understand what those risks are and to understand them, you need to understand the project. And so while I don't need to go to the level of an engineer, I need to understand what are the potential risks that this project face so that if an investor comes to me, I have a good answer. So for me, I think that my broad background allowed me to easily roll into this and be very comfortable on in all aspects of the work that a CFO um, has to engage with. Part two of the question is, you know, what I would recommend to people who are considering this type of work. There are so many aspects to uh, the muni space and uh, sustainability, and there's so many areas of specialization. One of the things that's really important for new people trying to establish a career is to spend time with the industry professionals across a range of fields. And there are many ways that one can do that. It could be conferences, it could be light networking, informal interviews. Once you meet someone in a company, make sure you ask for other recommendations of who they might be able to who you might be able to speak with there are many many ways to do it but i think talking to people you know there's so many free podcasts and webinars you know available to people now that when i was getting my experience early in my career these things weren't available And don't stay in um, something that you hate. You know, you're early enough in your career, if you have to move and do something different, it's better to do something you really enjoy and become very good at that than to do something that you It. I mean, don't stay too long if it's something you don't enjoy, find your
1: place. Pamela, you have a couple different times mentioned areas where some additional insight might be helpful. I'm wondering if we could maybe expand on that a little bit, just ask you the question directly. If you had questions that you think would benefit from academic research of some kind, you know, what are those questions? Where do you think that folks should focus their efforts as we try to understand some of these real complex issues that we've talked about here today?
0: You know i had mentioned just the tremendous amount of investment that has to go into climate uh, related financings and infrastructure things to address climate change and regardless of whether you believe in global warming or not climate change is very evident to anyone and it should be to everyone you shouldn't have to have lived through a storm to know what it is Um, i think that what we haven't addressed is while it's real. How are we going to fa- finance those things? Because if you think about it, governments have been financing infrastructure, and now you have this new area that has to be addressed. It's not a bridge. It's not a road. It's not a subway. Uh, where do you get the additional money? And I think that is something that people have not focused on. We are fortunate in that our stream of revenues is such that we can finan- you know, afford to finance our resiliency. But I think 90% of the the uh, entities out there will be greatly challenged to do it in a way that is uh, truly going to address the long term. I think there's a lot of patchwork happening, but not really long term strategic approach. But to do that is very costly. So I would like to submit that that has to be addressed. And whether that is some kind of incremental levy or other form of taxes, there an insurance premium. I think that has to be addressed head on, and I don't think that's been done yet.
1: Well, thanks so much, Pamela Frederick from the Battery Park City Authority. We really, really appreciate you taking the time to tell us all about green financings, the life of the CFO, and many, many other important insights. Uh, thanks for giving us some time here on the Public Money Pod. Absolutely, really
0: enjoyed being here. I'm always happy to talk about this topic. It's so important to not only Battery Park City Authority, but uh, to the nation, really.
2: Well, thanks again to Pamela for the very, very in-depth and interesting conversation about all the different kinds of, of subject areas she gets to touch on as, as a CFO for a sustainably minded authority. That's, um, it's really neat to, to think about and her, her advice um, at the end of our conversation was also really helpful. For this week's Rift from the Headlines segment, I am shamelessly promoting one of my pieces <laughs> and it, <laughs> it, it, it does tie in. It's not uh, It's not completely out of the blue. Last week for Route 50, I wrote about the home insurance crisis in a lot of places, but in California and Florida in particular, and it's being driven by by uh, climate change. And so that is, I wanted to kind of highlight a few things from that piece. And uh, this this is not in the piece. This is only going to be available on Public Money Pod. This little bit of info, but the reason I I wrote it, uh, or even you know, it was put on my radar by my parents who live in California, and they live in a in a what wasn't a wildfire prone area. Thirty years ago, but it, it now kind of is there. There was a wildfire um, back in 2020. I forget the name of it, but it came about within a mile of their of their house. Um, they live in um, just off of main street, so not on the edges of town. But the fire um, started chewing up kind of around the edges of town, and and then hit, they've had to evacuate several times over the last few years because of wildfires. Um, my dad was telling me about how their home insurance rates are going to be going up, and we compared notes on what we pay and. Mind you, this is California, so like compared with our house, I think the, the market value of their home has to be like at least double what ours is. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, they pay less than half what we pay. Annually hmm. for home insurance, <laughs> and so that's that's kind of what what interested me. I d- didn't include that, of course, in the Route 50 piece, but I thought it was very indicative of of what's going on in these in these states and how California and Florida have have tried to manage home insurance in their market and how their approaches need to be changing. And so home insurance for everyone has been going up. I think there is a poll, a Harris poll survey found that more than 60% of Americans say their their home insurance premiums are going up. Interestingly enough, uh, this year has the highest number of billion dollar weather disasters on record in the US, wildfires, severe storms. As of September, uh, we, we've tallied up about just under 58 billion in damage from, from natural disasters in the US. So uh, home insurance is rising in part because of because of what I just said, because of the natural disasters becoming more expensive and the, the number of homeowners that live in these areas. Insurers therefore are restricting, starting to restrict their business in these catastrophe prone markets. Um, Florida has been dealing with this since the 90s, since Hurricane Andrew. Uh, insurers kind of started uh, stepping down their business or leaving the state. But this year alone, uh, four insurance companies have announced they're going to stop writing new policies in Florida. California is, it's starting, is one of those places where it's just starting to happen now uh, because of wildfires. This year at least at least five large insurers, state farm, all state farmers, announced that they were restricting business in California. So both states deal with their home insurance markets differently. California has a uh, had a heavy regulatory approach that kept rates down to keep home insurance uh, affordable for California homeowners. Florida's approach it was to basically to publicly fund a backstop so that homeowners who couldn't find insurance in the state could go get insurance through something called their Citizens Property Insurance Corporation. But it was an insurer of last resort. It is now the largest insurer in the state of Florida. It's ballooned to about 1.4 million policies. So both states are looking at their approaches. California has an insurer of last resort too. More and more people are, are funneling over to it. It's funding is through insurers doing business in the state they they pay money into that fund but when you have more insurers leaving the state and more people coming into that fund it's fit, race, risks insolvency as well so both states have taken different approaches they're both kind of moving toward a market approach uh Florida is has you know changed some passed some legislation that in effect, is moving people off of citizens' insurance onto private insurers again, and and rates are going up. Um, in California, they they have announced a plan. They, being the governor and the, the insurance regulator, have announced a plan to allow insurers to factor in climate change into their home insurance premiums. So premiums in California will now be going up. The state has also allowed insure approved a couple of of rate hikes as well. They're both taking their kind of hands. They're hands off of their previous kind of stronghold of, of their approach and allowing more of a market-based approach. I guess the the reason that this to me was interesting is is for all the reasons I just said. I found it in this two states to approaches interesting, very indicative too, I think of the the policy culture of both of those states. But when I spoke with Natalie Cohen about this too and she's she's been on the the podcast and she pointed out that just just targeting home insurance is not is not the only thing that needs to be done here, and what she meant by that is is talking about some other other things that states need to be doing in, to help mitigate the overall cost of natural disasters of hurricanes of fires there are other things that that can help homeowners other than just trying to figure out this home insurance thing justin I, i'm curious about what kind of some of your thoughts were on these two states their their different approaches and just where you see how, how other places might be able to learn from this too as well because certainly there's natural disasters hitting a lot of states not just california and florida
1: yeah, uh, it's a great piece. I'm gonna have a chance to talk about it. It goes into you know, just enough depth to be able to understand the nuance and some of the different policy approaches, but not overwhelming you with depth the way that you could easily do in a in a piece like this. So it does a really really nice job with that. The thing that I kept coming back to as I was reading it was, you know, in public policy we always have this this debate about whether it's okay in policy to pick winners and losers, and I think in the world of climate adaptation. That's in some ways the, the question hanging over all of this. Are you able to, particularly as a state government, try to do things to adapt or mitigate climate change and, and the effects of climate change in a way that does not pick winners and losers? And the in the California approach, that more regulatory approach sometimes you run the risk of picking winners and losers either directly or indirectly and they seem to be in the process of trying to adapt to that and make sure that they that they don't do that that it doesn't become certain parts of the state are just more subsidized because people have access to this state fund that that they didn't otherwise and in the florida case which sort of in some ways was an overt picking of winners and losers under the under the old model now going to more of a market model and not picking winners and losers and having the market sort of sort out who's going to get insured and where and who's not going to get insured in some cases you know that's going to lead to a whole different set of outcomes the question is can you live with either of those outcomes can you live with what the market's going to give you uh, which could mean many communities becoming unaffordable or uninhabitable and then having to deal with all of the additional cost of that including maybe abandoning certain kinds of infrastructure or do you go with the more of the California approach which is to say let's if we leave it entirely to the market, there's going to be some folks left behind that we might not be comfortable with them being left behind. It's a really difficult balancing act. And I don't know that any state has figured this out just yet, but these are two really, really good illustrations of the kind of two, what were different, very different approaches at the outset sort of converging in a way or or taking on elements of each other in a way. And I think we're gonna see a lot of, of exactly this kind of adaptation over time because neither of these two extreme approaches is going to serve anyone well. The other thing that really jumped out at me was, the potential for kind of a double whammy here, when you think about property casualty insurers as investors in municipal ponds, if you are one of these coastal communities where it's going to be difficult for homeowners to get insurance, plus then you become far less attractive as an investment for those insurers who are not writing policies in your community, you see a potential for additional borrowing costs because the market for for their bond shrinks. So it's a really bad place to be. Uh, and we don't, maybe think about property casualty insurers as having such a huge impact on public finance. But when you take your piece, couple it with some of the other dynamics in this market, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that these are really, really consequential decisions, even if they're not the kinds of things we talk about day in and day out when we talk about Muni land and and the setting of public finance policy. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, Muni Pro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Podcast.